You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to conference coverage highlights from the Radiological Society of North America's 95th Scientific Assembly and Annual Meeting, which took place in Chicago. Your host for this program is Dr. Jason Bernholtz, Director of Diagnostic Ultrasound Consultants in Oak Brook, Illinois. I'm speaking with Dr. Wendy Berg, who is an international authority on early breast cancer detection. We're here at the RSNA where she is presenting multiple papers and courses all on aspects of breast cancer screening and imaging procedures. Dr. Berg is associated with Johns Hopkins Medical School in Baltimore, Maryland. Wendy, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Well, we've got this very confusing topic in a way of screening because there are so many approaches to screening. And we've got the complicated issue of what do you do for a whole population versus what do individual centers do for particular patients. And reconciling all those must be one very tricky thing. Absolutely. And it's certainly something that we're still, it's a work in progress. Let me think of something a little peripheral just for the time being. In some of your papers, you're alluding to people who are at a perceived increased genetic risk, people with BRCA genes family histories, and there are getting to be a a whole bunch of single nucleotide polymorphism panels that are aimed at identifying somebody's risk. Do you think, as these evolve in the future, that how we approach women in terms of annual or whatever exam schedule we follow will be predicated on their genetic risk as opposed to the other factors that we have now? I think there's a small number of women which is estimated around 2% of our screening population who are going to be found to have mutations that put them at very high risk for breast cancer. There are ways to predict who might be a carrier of those mutations and that maybe at most 10% of women deserve genetic counseling and testing. I think it's probably premature or unlikely that we're going to consider doing genetic testing in the other 90% of women in order to determine what we should be doing for screening. The motivation for looking at these very high-risk women differently is that when people did look at mammography and its performance, and of course mammography is our gold standard still, it's the only test proven to save lives from breast cancer regardless of what has been in the recent lay press, That is our standard, but it's less effective in women who are at high risk. And we were finding that there were more advanced cancers in patients who were BRCA carriers, BRCA gene mutation carriers. And so there was an interest in what else we could do better. So MRI has, of course, been recommended now as of the 2007 guidelines from the American Cancer Society for women who are at high risk, who are known to have a mutation in the BRCA genes or some of the other more unusual genetic syndromes that put them at high risk, or if they have a sister or father, for that matter, a first-degree relative who has the gene mutation. There's a much bigger category of women, though, who fall at what we would call intermediate risk. And those are anywhere from 15 to 30% of our screening population. So those are women who have a personal history of breast cancer but are not thought to have the gene mutation. Women who have an intermediate family history. So mother might have been diagnosed in her 50s, an aunt in her 70s. There's some family history but not enough to put her at what we would think to be high risk. Or they've had a prior biopsy that was atypical. So they're more likely to develop breast cancer. 
And it's for that group of women where there's been the most confusion and what we should do and how to approach this, because it is a large group of women. So if we started to do MRI tomorrow in all those women, that would be a huge resource issue, both in terms of cost and just facility capacity. We don't have that, something that we could avail offer tomorrow. But it's also something that maybe women are not going to seek. It's a fairly involved test to have a screening breast MRI exam. It requires injecting contrast, so it does have this intravenous injection of gadolinium. It's a tunnel, so women who are claustrophobic may be less tolerant of it. And so ultrasound may play a role to help in that situation. Okay, well, before, before we get to individual, individual methods, it looks like the simple thing is to assume that everybody is at some risk, some may be at higher risk, but that Screening means you just check everybody in some sense. Right. So the biggest risk factors for breast cancer, of course, are just being a woman and getting older. So we would start screening everybody. Still, the standard in our field is still to start at age 40 because there is proven reduction in breast cancer deaths starting in women in their 40s from annual mammography. So the basic premise is that everybody would still get an annual mammogram. Are all mammograms the same? Well, there are digital. There are different just technologies, the digital being like a digital camera so that we can actually window and level and look at it a little bit nicer. If it's got denser tissue, it's more effective because we can see through it a little bit better. We can get more contrast out of the image. And it's proven to increase our cancer detection rate by about 15 percentage points if we use digital compared to the old-fashioned film mammography in women who have dense breasts. So For younger women who tend to have denser breasts and for any woman with dense breasts, it's more important that it be done with digital mammography. There are some other new approaches to mammography that really aren't available yet. Digital versus film is the main choice at this point. Okay, so mammography, which is already established as being very effective in a screening sense, will be getting better as some of these other technical improvements. Right, and it's important to keep in mind that the data that was recently evaluated by the United States Preventive Services Task Force looked only at, of course, the older studies, which were done only with film, so that upfront is going to reduce the sensitivity, the ability to detect cancers in the younger, denser breasts. It's interesting, and this is a, a bit of a sideline here, but with the, the only new data that the task force had to look at compared to 2002 was the study that was done in Britain where they looked at women, enrolled them from age 39 to 48, we invited them to have a mammogram every year. The first time they did the mammogram was with the regular two views, like we always do in this country. The, each subsequent screen, though, they only did a single view. And we know that that cuts down on the number of cancers that they can see by about 20%. You just don't see every cancer in just one of the two mammographic images. So up front, they were stacking the deck that they might not see all the breast cancers. And even with this, they had almost a significant benefit from the screening mammography in these younger women. So to say that that study you know, is incontrovertible evidence against mammography is really ludicrous. And even talking to the director of that study, she freely admits that that's not fair to do that. Now, before we get to MRI, which is one of your favorite topics, how about injecting ultrasound, my favorite topic, into this mix? Where does this fit into screening now? 
So ultrasound, as I mentioned initially, with the women who are intermediate risk, it's a little bit too much to think about doing MRI for all of those women. And we just finished a major four-year trial of looking at screening ultrasound as a supplement to mammography, and that's the work that we were presenting here with Akron 6666. But the bottom line is that we found not only with the first time we did an ultrasound, but with each subsequent ultrasound every year, in addition to mammography, we increased the cancer detection rate 29%. So we found 29% more cancers And this is an absolute increase when we added ultrasound to mammography. It's a huge difference. And to put that in context, if we talk about clinical breast examination, it's about 3% increase in the absolute rate of cancer detection. If we look at some of the other things that we do, like using the computer to help us identify abnormalities, so-called CAD, that's accepted as a standard thing to do. And some studies have found no increased cancer detection, some maybe 5% but nowhere near this 29% that we find with ultrasound. Well, when our colleagues are out there thinking about referrals, should they be referring somebody for a screening mammography and an ultrasound at the same time? We would not do screening ultrasound unless the tissue is dense because mammography actually does very well in fatty breasts. The only way a woman can know if her breasts are dense is to know what it says in the mammogram report. It's a standard phrase right up front in the first part of the report, which goes to her doctor, which tells whether or not her breast tissue is dense. It has nothing to do with the way they feel or how lumpy they are or anything else. You can't predict it from a clinical exam. But if the report says that her tissue is dense, then we know that she is someone we would consider for screening ultrasound. At this time, again, because we don't have enough trained personnel throughout the country and in every city even, we can't always offer it even when we think it might be helpful. And so we tend to restrict it to the women who have extremely dense breasts or those who, again, have some other risk factor, personal history of breast cancer or family history that's not high enough to merit an MRI. We've been speaking with Dr. Wendy Berg about breast screening options. Wendy, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. We're speaking with Dr. Alexis Kalekis from Athens. He is the Assistant Professor of Interventional Radiology at the University of Athens in Greece. And Dr. Kalekis, his paper at the RSNA with his colleagues is Comparative Prospective Study Between Conservative Treatment and Percutaneous Discompression for the Treatment of Intervertebral Disc Herniation. Alex, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here. This turns out to be a topic that's a very hot item lately because there have been several recent studies that have said people who have back pain and compressed discs and they have their vertebroplasties, that the procedure doesn't really help. So I want to make a distinction between what you are doing and this other area of vertebroplasty for collapsed vertebral bodies. Can you talk about the difference? Vertebroplasty is a procedure about the fracture of the vertebral body, about the bone. We have a fracture of the vertebral bone, and we try to stabilize that fracture. Now, there are two papers out, and there's a lot of debate. I don't think the dust is settled yet, and uh, during the Congress, we will hear even more here about these studies. But I can tell you for sure that the things are not settled. The studies have problems, and they have been pointed out, and I don't believe that vertebroplasty or kyphoplasty are already dead as techniques. Apart from that, our study today we're talking about is about disc disease. Patients who have a small herniated disc, a small bulging disc, and this disc, we're trying to find a way to cure it. 
to help the people to get rid of the pain. How did you decide that discs were herniated? When I was a resident, I had to do myelograms. I hated to do myelograms, but now they are much better. What we did, we took the patients, and which with the symptoms, we did an MRI. I believe that the MRI provides you much more information than the CT. The CT is very good for a traumatic, acute, high-energy fracture, when you want to see the burst pieces. But when you want to define the ligaments, when you want to define the status of the disc, the MRI is the imaging that you will require in order to see the lesions and decide what kind of treatments you will do. Now, you found herniated discs. What do you do? Now, I find a herniated disc. First of all, we have to see what kind of herniation is this. Is this a contained herniation? So our study was about contained herniation disc. And then we see the clinical condition of the patient. Does that herniation fit the patient's profile? Is the patient having the pain due to that herniated disc? Because sometimes there is an inconsistency between the findings of the MR and the clinical status of the patient. Once everything coincides in one thing, that that herniated disc probably provokes the pain, which means we have the sciatalgia, the pain in that correct area, then we decide for the treatment. And how do you treat them? What do you do? So now we, dis- we divided the patients into two groups. The one group went for a conservative treatment, as we would do for any patient. The second group went for a percutaneous approach. We punctured the disc, and there are different systems around the world that does that, but the basic thing is that they remove a portion of the nucleus pulpus of the disc. So you remove the portion to shrink the disc. The idea is to make the disc a raisin, to try to shrink the condition of the hernia in order to avoid the irritation of the nerve root. So we followed up those patients, and following them up up to two years, we saw that both techniques actually in the beginning work. You give the medication, and we know that the patients are doing very good, but we saw that the pain crept up back to the practically the initial level two years later. Our median pain before was for the patients was 8 out of 10, and the patient came back to 6 out of 10 after two years in the patients that were treated conservatively. The patients that were treated percutaneously, the pain went back down and stayed down at approximately 1 to 2 out of 10 numeric visual scale. You think maybe that the people who had conservative treatment had additional disc disease that developed? This is probable. In the MRs we did, we did not find any other disc disease. But what was important is that these patients did not have their symptoms mainly due to compressive forces. There was no motor deficit in those patients. These patients were painful conditions, patients that had pain mainly. So it's mainly due to an irritation of the root more than a compressive force on the root. And on that irritation, once you try and decompress the disc a little bit, you gain some millimeters, you gain some space, the pain goes away and the patients are doing good. You know, what I think is a very good message from this is that now the diagnostic capabilities are such that you can be very precise about what's going on and you can tailor your therapy to the individual patient. And this is the important part. We don't have a hammer and we don't nail everybody. We're trying to fit the condition. If the image does not explain the condition of the patient, we should go back to the drawing table and decide what should be done. It might be a simple infiltration that would do the trick better than any kind of intervention. So one has to think all the stages and the different procedures available and choose the right one for our patient. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
We've been speaking with Dr. Alexis Kolekis from the University of Athens in Greece. You've been listening to conference coverage highlights from the Radiological Society of North America's 95th Scientific Assembly and Annual Meeting. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Visit us at ReachMD.com. And thank you for listening.